Welcome back, everybody. It's the Uncensored CMO. In this episode, I'm catching up with Nancy King, who is the VP for marketing at Airbnb. Now, Airbnb are perhaps most famous in marketing circles for making a really big shift from performance marketing over to brand marketing as a result of the pandemic. Imagine being at Airbnb during the pandemic where literally 80% of their business disappeared overnight. It was a really, really challenging time, but they've come out of that stronger than ever, delivering some incredible results. So I'm talking to Nancy about how they survived that and how she has led the business on their brand marketing journey. So much to learn in this episode. I know you're going to love it. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. And we're here in San Francisco, right? Home of technology and uh, and home of Airbnb, of course. So before we get into it, because I've got a ton of questions I'd love to ask about, you know, about the brand and the company and, and how you've survived the last few years and what's gone on. Tell us a bit about you and how, how you got to where you are today, because your background is in the creative industries, isn't it, rather than in kind of client-side marketing. So what was your journey to this role? Sure, I would love to tell you. I, I, I like to think it was a unconventional background. I So I started um, college thinking I was going to be a doctor and was pre-med and left college with an English and art history degree. And in that learned that sometimes um, you might disappoint people with your choices. No, no one's parents get excited when you switch from pre-med to a English degree, but that when you find the thing that you really love, it all just starts to click. And I just realized I loved language. I loved creativity. I loved art. And so I moved to San Francisco after college and I joined an advertising agency. I knew absolutely nothing about advertising. I thought, wow, the creative department, that seems pretty cool. I, I think I want to be in that department. And so I started going to art school um, on the weekends and the evenings. I learned design and photography, Photoshop, Illustrator, all sorts of things, and put together a portfolio. And I got a job here in San Francisco at an agency called Goodby Silverstein and Partners, which was an incredible experience for me. I spent seven years there. I worked on all sorts of clients. I, HP, I sold HP computers. I launched uh, Britney Spears' Perfume, which was a very interesting experience. And and I think the thing that I took from that, well, there are a few things I took from that. One is that there is an immeasurable value to creativity. And the second is that creativity is incredibly hard. And I realized after my time there that, or during my time there, that there were people that were much better at being creatives than I was. I loved it. Um, I loved doing it. But I felt like it wasn't, I was a little off center from where I wanted to be. And I was really interested in how business decisions and creativity intersected with one another. And so I left Goodby. I moved to New York. I got a job as a junior strategist. Ooh, and nice. Yeah. And so, and I kind of started over, not truly started over because I, I had so much experience in the industry, but I loved it. I loved consumer research. I loved working with clients. I loved understanding how to frame a problem and really being kind of the liaison between these two groups. And I did that for a number of years and worked for a bunch of different agencies. And in 2007, 
a number of people I knew were starting tech companies. There was a lot of big tech boom in New York. And so I started a consultancy to work with anywhere from series um, A, series B, even some seed companies to help with positioning and go-to-market plans. And that was a unlock for me. I, I actually realized how naive I had been working on the agency side. I had no idea how a company ran. I had no idea how people made decisions about product and spending. I didn't know how an engineering team worked. And I kind of caught a bug in that. And it led me back to San Francisco. I took a job at one of the companies I was advising, which was a um, machine learning company that was building, they were building a social news feed, which was a totally different world to be in. Um, it ended up getting sold to LinkedIn. But San Francisco then led me to Airbnb. And so right as that company was was being sold, there was a job at Airbnb. It was 2015. Um, it was one of the, it was the first time they had hired someone for strategy. It was a strategy and global strategy and consumer insights role. And I was lucky enough to get it. And that's where this chapter began. Amazing. Now we'll get into it because I can't wait to talk a bit more about it. Um, but just quickly before we do, um, how what can uh, people in agencies understand about clients and vice versa from your experience? You, I guess you've got quite a unique background in that you've seen it from both sides. I would just say try to learn as much as possible about the business. Ask questions, understand how the decision gets made, understand what clients are worried about and what they're being measured against. Because you know, in, internally, there's just a lot of different, a lot of different problems and challenges. And I think it can help people be more successful in pushing their creative ideas forward. Yeah, that's top, top advice. I, I very briefly did um, uh, pitch training for agencies. Uh, so I, I was client side 20 something years, ends up getting fired, uh, freelance for a while, and then weirdly found myself doing pitch training because um, I was using my kind of CMO experience to go, and here's how you should, you know, pitch yourselves. And it's exactly as you say, right? What's the what's the objective for the clients? You know, what are they measured on? How do they make decisions? You know, what what's keeping them up at night? What's most important? All these things, you know, often in your, in, in agencies rush to kind of present the idea or um, be creative, you know, they forget that actually they're trying to solve a business problem, work out what it is, you know, and, and uh, how decision, how, how will they decide? It's quite funny, actually. Um, I used to say when the first question is when, when you're in a pitch process, let's say you're up against three other agencies, phone the client up and say, how will you decide between the agencies, right? Seems so simple, but they're like, really? Can you do that? I'm like, well, why not? You know, Just say, give me 15 minutes. I've got to ask you a little bit about the brief and understand a bit more about you as a, you know, you as a business. And, you know, four or five questions will probably win you the brief because it shows you understand, you know. But uh, anyway, let's get back to Airbnb and uh, say, you know, join the roles. Can you tell us a bit about the origins of Airbnb and maybe the phases you've been through as a, a, you know, as a brand over the last few years? Sure. So, you know, before I joined was sort of the early, early stage and uh, three founders, two of whom met at art school, who were trying to build a company, were running out of money and a design conference came into town and it birthed this idea, um, Airbed and Breakfast, where they rented out an airbed in their apartment to people attending the design conference. And what they realized was, wow, like not only can I make money doing this and be able to pay my rent, but it was a great experience. They had a good time. The people who stayed with them had a good time. And that's where it began. And 
you know, I have such admiration for the for the founding team because everyone thought it was the craziest idea. I mean, no one thought that they would be a successful company. Staying in a stranger's home, sleeping in their home. Um, that was 2008. Uh, when I joined in 2015, it definitely we had a, a global business. They had scaled the business, but you know, we were still relatively unknown. And it's kind of hard to imagine now. In the U.S., when I joined, um, I set up a brand tracker and I learned that we had 24% aided awareness. When we showed wow. someone- aided the, awareness. The, what? So one in four people had even ever heard of you at this right, point. Wow. Right. We showed the logo with the words Airbnb underneath it. And so it's been incredible how much we have grown and scaled since then. I think that I see the my experience at Airbnb in three chapters. There was the startup chapter when I joined, which is when everyone was just sprinting towards building a business, acquiring hosts. It was a one by one, you know, win over people strategy. Then um, I had the good fortune of working for Jonathan Mildenhall, who was my my boss when I joined, and. We did our first brand campaign, and I think really that put Airbnb on the map and positioned Airbnb as a way to travel like a local. And then there was chapter two, which I think is like a very typical tech chapter, which is growth at all costs. And we verticalized the business. We empowered teams to run towards different goals. We, we really, I think, ran the tech playbook. And did that until the pandemic hit. And then I would say chapter three of Airbnb for me is the the post-pandemic, which I have to say is the chapter I love the most. And how did you so in the chapter three where you're 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 recovering and rapidly growing, what what was different about how you worked as an organization compared to before? So you talked about everyone in their individual specialisms. How did that change uh, after the pandemic? Well, I only know this in because, you know, in in retrospect, I could see things more clearly, but it's that when a company grows and scales, it starts to get cobbled together in strange ways. There are processes there are, that are different across teams. There are acquisitions of people that don't really um, align necessarily with the brand or the culture. And so you sort of have this Frankenstein of a company. And when the pandemic hit, I mean, it was a very sobering moment. I think we lost 80% of our business. Right? Wow. How did you? How did that feel at that point? I mean, what was the emotion running around? Because you're dealing with a pandemic personally, anyway. Presumably, everybody. And then suddenly, you're looking at your business disappear in front of you. We had no idea. I mean, there were articles being written that said, "You know, is this the end of Airbnb? Is this the end of travel?" The idea of going and staying in a stranger's home during the beginning of the pandemic. I thought about that. But seemed you're right. nuts. I mean, why would anyone do that? Or opening up your home to a stranger. You, we weren't even going and seeing our parents. And so, yeah, it was a time of total uncertainty. But I think, and you know, this was Brian, our, our CEO, who led this, it was a time to totally reset. I mean, imagine the luxury of being able to rethink, restructure, simplify your business. And, you know, that's exactly what he did. And he was an incredible leader during that phase. And, you know, there was an unfortunate period where we had to let a lot of the company go. But in that, we made a lot of hard decisions about where we wanted to focus as a company and radically simplified things. And what came of that was 
a very integrated, collaborative company with, you know, a, uh, a single roadmap that we all work against. And so I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of silver linings. I think that um, what came out of the pandemic was a company that was much stronger than what where we were when we went into it. Yeah. And how did you, how did you maintain morale during that time? Because, I mean, it's it, that must have been quite existential as a threat, not knowing whether the business would recover, how are you going to continue funding the operation? You know, I don't know if, if every company had this, but we were so busy. And I think in some ways that is what drove a sense of purpose because we didn't know what was going to happen. So constantly we were looking at numbers of cases in different countries and looking at policy changes at every single, you know, we're in 191 countries around the world, every single thing that was happening in all those countries. I mean, I don't know if that actually proved useful, but it meant we were really busy and um, really busy thinking about what were all the different ways we could emerge from this moment. And I think in some ways, you know, it, it brought people together around a common goal of Try, trying to decide what the best thing to do was. It's funny, actually. It reminds me, as you talk there, of uh, so system one, we, we kind of do advertising testing, right? And the first thing that happened with COVID, everyone shuts their advertising down, right? And they certainly don't make a new ad. I mean, the last thing people, well, apart from the sort of social media kind of botched together ones, but, but literally everyone's shut down. And so we were like, what do we do? I mean, like, apart from kind of figuring out you know, how we cut costs. Um, so we ended up doing two things. We did a we did a COVID tracker, which basically looked at sentiment towards COVID and people's responses and changes in patterns of behavior. Because we thought, well, we might as well use our research intel to help the world kind of navigate their way through it. And then the other thing we did, we decided to test every bit of COVID communication in the world, right? <laughs> or at least as far as we get hold of it. So it's quite expensive doing this, actually. But what we then did is, is we did these weekly briefings where we're going... Because people were, didn't know what to say and how to say it. So people were coming to us going, can I show the ad that I ran three weeks ago? Is it appropriate to now? Or, you know, it, you know, should we lean into the co- you know, into COVID and go in these times, you know, all the kind of thing that's going on? Or can we show people holding hands? I mean, we were getting these kind of questions, you know, is it okay to show someone on holiday, you know, not wearing a mask, you know? So it's strange, isn't it? But you, we were dealing with what's in front of us, weren't we, in that kind of period of time? And uh, so, I mean, it was weirdly energizing and threatening at the same time, really. Yeah, I mean, we had the exact same experience. We um, we started to see nearby travel pick up. And I think it was people who were stuck in their homes, relocating with their family, with their friends, finding an office to work from. And I think as we started to see that emerging behavior, that's when like the, the what do we do as a marketing organization started to turn on. And when we had the same cautious approach, we didn't want to be seen as contributing to what was happening and, and as a travel company that is possible. And so um, the first thing we did, and we joke now that we call it a campaign because it was actually just a series of emails, um, and we spent so long working on them, but it was called Go Near. And it was a rallying cry to go somewhere within 100 miles and be with the people that you love. And that kind of turned on the engine of thinking about selective marketing opportunities that were right in that moment of the the pandemic but it started to feel exciting then. It started to feel like that's when like, we were thinking about our strategy. We were thinking about creative. We were thinking about the consumer again. We were tra- mapping the different 
phases that consumers were going through where, you know, I think there was one where um, everyone was very afraid. And then there was this sense of yearning, you know, and and wanting it to go back to the way it was or feeling nostalgic for the trips that people had done. And, and, and a lot of that is what led to the first campaign that we launched, which we called Made Possible by Hosts, which was a celebration of the types of trips that Airbnb hosts enable and a reminder of sort of the, the magic and um, variety of Airbnb trips. And that was such a great experience because we had we couldn't do production. And so we have a whole network of photographers that we work with. And we asked them, we said, hey, we'll get you an Airbnb if you pick people that you feel comfortable traveling with and take a trip and photograph it. And that was the brief. And all these photographers came back with um, the photos of their trips and you know, our creative team found this magical way to put them together as essentially slideshows with music. And that became our first campaign. There's something very interesting about that as well, because do you know what we were finding, because we were testing so many of these um, for free, because we didn't have any customers, well, not many. And um, what we noticed is that that style of advertising can actually work very well. And, you know, you, you didn't need to have a very expensive production overseas with a huge, you know, crew making, making you out. It, it did actually teach us what's possible remotely. And, and the, you, know, is, you know, it's about the idea, isn't it? But what you can achieve on a relatively small budget. Um, let me ask a question about um, investment. I remember at the time there was a big debate about, you know, going dark, you know, in recessions and that brands recover when they invest through the dark times. But, but obviously the business is under a lot of pressure. Sales, you know, income was down a lot. How did you make the decisions about investing back into advertising again? A few things happened. Before the pandemic, like many companies, we were investing very heavily in performance marketing. Having all the lights turn off at once allowed us to look back at that and look at the performance and the impact in a new way. And I think it turned out that it really wasn't doing as much for us as we thought. You know, we were also going through the IPO process, and I think that it was really clear that Airbnb's brand is something that outside of the walls of Airbnb is really valued. I mean, most people, the vast majority of people come to us direct with no marketing. Um, and that's because of the strength of our brand over time. And and so I think there was, I mean, this it really was led, I think, by a desire to start communicating again and an understanding that performance marketing probably wasn't going to be the thing that the world needed so in would, that moment. Would, would you have got to that conclusion without the pandemic, do you think? Or, you know, or, or, or did it accelerate? Or did it, did it bring it into the cold light of day? Yeah, it's funny. And, and I, you know, a lot, of, I, a lot of CMOs reach out to me and say, what's the, what's the recipe? You know, people who have been hired to build brands but feel pressured to deliver short-term results and end up torn between the two and, and not able to actually achieve the vision of building the brand. And and I describe it as like we kind of got a hall pass because we were freed from the tyranny of weekly metric reviews and all the questions that come with how long does it take for brand to pay back? Is our measurement accurate? You know, our our metrics were all over the place. And so it gave us six, nine, 12 months of running work 
where we really didn't know, where we build a lot of the foundational measurement. We put different, you know, trackers in place. We we had this luxury of being able to do the thing that we thought was right without the questions that everyone gets. And I and I, you know, I I feel like I wish that there was I had a great answer other than you, you know, a, the answer is you need a pandemic <laughs> to <laughs> to be able to run brand marketing. Um, but but hopefully, you know, as Companies see others succeed by having a really brand-forward playbook. There'll be more openness to it. I found it. Is, uh, dug out this quote from Brian. Actually, that was quite interesting. Um, he said, um, "We think of performance marketing as more of a way to laser in on balancing supply and demand, rather than a way of purchasing a large amount of customers." So I thought that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you know, it, it, it reframes the role of performance marketing a little bit differently. To uh, you know, rather than being about acquisition, more about you know managing supply and demand. That's quite an astute way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, unlike most companies who can manufacture as many of the products as they want, we are limited by the supply that we well, have. This is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because you don't. I mean, sorry, as we were talking about quotes, I'll dig out my friend Tom Goodwin's quote. Which I thought it was fascinating. You know, he's he said this: uh, Uber, the world's largest taxi company, doesn't have any vehicles. Facebook, the world's largest uh, media company, owns no content. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, has no real estate. So you don't ha- you don't own your products, do you? Which is one of the talk about the four P's of marketing. There's a very big P that you don't own. So ha- what kind of challenge does that present? Well, I think. It means that we have a brilliant business model because we don't own anything. You know, our our business is really the app that is connecting our guests and hosts. So it's it's brilliant from a business perspective and super challenging from a marketing perspective because unlike a marketer that can show a shoe or a credit card or a car and say, this is what we sell and here's why it's great, we sell 4 million plus different things. And, and so... I think the biggest challenge we have from a marketing organization is how do we talk about our product? Because if you show one version of the product, it might appeal to a very narrow audience. If you show another, it might appeal to a different audience. And so it's very hard to drive mass appeal when every product is totally different. So how, how do you overcome that? What's, what's the answer to, to that in terms of your advertising? Yeah, so we have, uh, you know, and I think this has evolved over time, but we have this model. And I think, well, I think fundamentally we have a model or principle that's don't do what everyone else does. And so rather than doing advertising where we have people write a script and we hire a director and then we make an ad, we have two versions of storytelling. One are authentic documentary style stories which the the photo uh, um the photo stories is an example of that those were true experiences that we just turned into films and the other is we use an animated style as a representation of airbnb and so that allows us to talk conceptually about what we offer and to talk about the broader um, proof points and benefits without being kind of bogged down by, well, which home do we show and what kind of people do we show and how do we reflect the inventory? And so that's the model that we've created. So far, it seems to be working, but... I seems yeah, we, we, we find that system when we talk to people about having characters or, you know, or, or mascots. In a way, the genius of them is because you're not showing a celebrity or a particular person, they appeal to everybody. You know, they're, they're kind of neut- in the same way, using animation is a good way of kind of appealing to everybody rather than sort of excluding some audience because you're talking about a particular part of uh, Airbnb. 
Yeah, we have a new campaign that we just launched, um, which we call Get an Airbnb. And we made it because what we realized was because our company has changed so much over time and because it's what we offer is so variable, there really wasn't a shared mental model of what we offered. Everybody kind of has a different model. Oh, it's it's for backpackers. Oh, it's for rich people. Oh, it's homes. Oh, it's hostels. And and so we realized we needed to take a step back and just like lay the foundation. What what do we offer? Why why is Airbnb a good choice? And despite being a really big company, I think the thing that we always are humbled by is like we're still a challenger brand. I mean, hotels are the dominant accommodations provider. And so if we want to grow, we've got to get people to switch from an Airbnb or switch from a hotel to an Airbnb. And um, that's what really got us excited about animation because we wanted to talk about what a hotel represents and the experience that it offers and juxtapose that to the what an Airbnb represents and the experience it offers. And yeah, so that's what we that's what we've been doing. We've- now I did I did jump in the system on database actually and have a quick look at the best performing ad. We've got quite a few of your ads on the database anyway. Um and the top scoring with a four point five out of five, so congratulations, uh, in the top three or four percent of our database was the yellow submarine one, which I absolutely love. I mean, having kids in an ad is always gonna help. The music plays a lovely role. But the other thing I liked about it is you, you kind of uh, you, you call it the oh my God category. <laughs> and what, one of the smart things I think you've done is you've managed to sort of get over this challenge of want to talk to everybody, but you can talk to somebody at the same time by by kind of categorizing quite cleverly, haven't you, how Airbnb fits into all these different uh, different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. They, so thank you for that. I'll, I'll put that in my annual review. Yeah, do, by the way. I'll send you I'll send you a report later. You can... Uh. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the categories campaign, I mean, we we faced a similar challenge when we launched that. And it's how do you explain the range of inventory that we have? And our product team had been working on this massive taxonomy project to organize and sort and, and um, reflect all the different home types that we have through our product. And so what we did on the marketing side was brought that to life with these films about the different categories. And yeah, the yellow submarine one was lovely. And it, and again, though, it wasn't planned. You know, we sent this photographer out and we had we had them stay in the submarine, see what would happen. And they came back with this lovely, lovely story of children and the delight and the curiosity and the magic of being in such an unusual place. And, you know, and it just it was like a, it was natural after that. Now, something else that stands out, I know about how you, you run your business, is you do a lot of that in-house, don't you, um, rather than kind of rely on agencies, which is a little bit ironic given your background, but presumably given your background also makes it, you know, you, you're perfectly placed. So what, what, what was the thinking behind in-housing so much of uh, the kind of creative process? I mean, we've always had a big in-house creative team. And um, during the pandemic, uh, Hiroki Asai, who is a a legend, but it came from Apple and really pushed on the value of in-house creative. And so all of the work we do is in-house. We have a tremendously talented creative team um, that works across everything we do. We have teams that work on our launches. We have teams that work on product marketing, teams that work on advertising. And we obviously partner with photographers outside or editing houses. But 
I think the benefit of it is we're all on the same team. We're all in service of the Airbnb brand. And when you work with agencies, there's times, and I mean, I felt this myself as a creative, where you're in service of your own portfolio. And so I think that alignment between the marketing team and the creative team really helps us make great work. And how do you get the balance between doing the, going back to the kind of performance conversation and brand, how do you decide the balance between those two things in the organization? I mean, it's, it's like the old classic kind of 60-40, isn't it? The, the, the kind of golden rule of, of mix between the two. Do you, do you have a sort of a operating model that guides you in terms of where to, where you put your, your spend? Yeah, probably different from other companies. We, I mean, we look at our, our revenue and how marketing is a percentage of our revenue. And then we start with what we want to do on the brand side. And who do we want to reach? Which channels, which frequency, what, what objective are we trying to drive? And we model out what that costs. And then we look at what's left and think, okay, is that enough? That's usually the opposite. Most companies do, right, we've got to get the performance bit sorted. Oh, we've got a bit left for the, uh, the brand at the end of the day. That's interesting. Yeah. And is that, is that partly because, obviously, obviously it's your journey, but, but the fact that you, have a, you don't own the products and you don't have distribution channels beyond the website, right? Presumably, like, without that, you know, you're, you're nothing. Really. You know, you've got, there's no other ways of building brand apart from directly, is there? Yeah, I mean, we don't have the benefit of consumers wearing our shoes or someone carrying our phone or someone driving our car with a logo on it. And so we don't exist in the world unless we create ways to exist. And so not only does the marketing team do that, but we have a really incredible comms team that does a ton of work to make Airbnb exist more in the world. And so, yeah, I think that's the challenge and why I think brand marketing and 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 comms too is so important for us as otherwise we can be invisible yeah now i wanted to ask a little bit about the culture as well because um what how would you describe the culture and, and what impact that has on on the success of the company well i think there's i mean at its core we're a founder-led company and that's a very very different model because it's deeply personal and you know brian who is our ceo I mean, he went to art school. He started Airbnb in his 20s. You know, it's it's incredible what he's been able to do as a CEO. But he is still very much the leader of the company and and guiding our strategy and the different initiatives that we do and highly involved in reviewing all of our creative work. You know, and I think a, a guardian of the brand. I mean, before I joined the, you know, I think in founder-led companies, especially ones that are so creatively oriented, the brand is not a slide deck that exists in the marketing department. The brand is everything. It's the offices. It's the way we interview people. It's the way our customer support works. And so I think the benefit of working at a founder-led company is marketing doesn't have to try to convince people of what we stand for and why we exist we proselytize it. So it's a very, it's a very different role. That really stands out. And even with your charitable work as well, you go, well, of course that makes sense. That's what, you know, kind of linked to what you do. I notice that a lot actually when I do speak to founder led organizations and founders is when they talk about purpose, it's just intrinsic in the whole offer. And then when you're talking to corporate brands that have been around a while, 
it just feels engineered. It's like, oh, we've just come up with a new positioning and this new kind of purpose. So, you know, we're going to add on to what we're doing. And it just, it's just not authentic, is it? But talking of talking of founder, because one of my favorite books is The Founder's Mentality. A, a big shout out, by the way, to it's one of the most underrated books that are actually out there because I, I haven't met that many people that have read it. But in there, they talk about... Um, kind of three elements that oh actually back up a little bit in in the book the uh, the authors look at the success on the S&P 500 and uh, they differentiate between founder-led organizations where the founder is still involved materially in day-to-day running versus management team-led uh, uh, companies. I can't remember what the delta is, but there's a very big difference in terms of returns over kind of 20 years they found. And then they diagnose what it is that founder-led businesses still do that the others don't. And they drew it down to three things. And and the first thing was uh, a frontline focus that when founders are much more likely to still be talking to customers, still be out there, you know, getting feedback from actually customers think you know, what they think. The second thing was what they called an owner's mindset, which is the employees act like they're also owners of the company rather than they're working for some anonymous kind of corporation. And then the third thing is a sense of insurgency that things have to happen quickly. And if we don't, we know we're going to be dead sort of thing, you know. Um, I'm just fascinated to know, is does that ring true as I described that? Is that kind of how it's like? I mean, 100%, I would say, like an extra plus next to the sense of <laughs> insurgency. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we can't move fast enough. And do enough. And, you know, and, and I think that is because there's so much passion behind what we're doing. It's so personal what we're doing. Um, but all of that absolutely rings true. And and I feel like I don't know if I would want to work for a company that wasn't founder-led after this, because I do feel very personally responsible for the growth and success of Airbnb. Like, I care about it deeply. I'm not thinking, what's my next job going to be? And what should I do to get to my next job? I'm thinking about how do I help make Airbnb succeed? And that is because that's the culture and it comes from the founder. Mm, that's really powerful, actually. That really is. I, I know exactly what you mean, isn't it? When in founder-led business, you, you feel that weight of responsibility. I, actually, I feel it a little bit now. In, so we, we've, we've, we're blessed to have our founder still in our company. And I feel a debt to him, right? I, I actually feel like a loyalty that's way above you know, working in a corporate business where, yeah, I could take it or leave it. I could switch it for a better package, go somewhere else, you know, better di- job title. Where actually, I feel it's almost like an allegiance, isn't it? Like in a, in a sports club, you go, no, no, I'm part of the team and I want us to win together kind of thing. Yeah. Really yeah. And I don't think you can manufacture that. You know, I, mm. I people often ask me, well, why have I stayed so long? And I think, you know, the, there's always the trade-off. You know, I work really hard. I have two kids. I have a wonderful husband. Why do I work so hard? And it's because I think the thing that I'm asking people to do is valuable to the world. And I don't think there are a lot of companies that I would say that about. Like, I think getting out into the world and exploring and connecting with one another, um, learning about different cultures, meeting strangers is intrinsically valuable and increasingly valuable as technology and AI become bigger parts of our lives. And so, yeah, it's very purposeful for me. And presumably, I mean, you, you said you, you know, worked at Airbnb for eight years, but presumably the role has changed quite a lot. The business has changed, hasn't it? But presumably the role has changed quite a lot in that time as well. So it m- must not feel like the same job that you started eight years ago now. No, that's the other thing is that it, it, I actually always stay, I'm, I'm not a two-year job person. I always stay at least four years and usually longer. And and people ask me why. And I said, it's because I only leave a job 
when I stopped learning. And at Airbnb, I mean, that's impossible. You know, when I joined, um, I had never built a consumer insights team before. So that was a learning opportunity for me. I had never led strategy for a global company with a global scale. And then I started over time taking on more and more responsibilities. And so um, I ended up managing the whole guest, which is our demand marketing team. And then I added the host marketing team. And then I built out a product marketing team. And then we had, we decided to start doing launches. And so I added that. And then international expansion has become really important for us. So I added that. And then I added our growth and performance marketing team and then operations. And so, you know, I think I, I feel quite lucky because I feel like I've been able to almost sort of apprentice in these different parts of the company and and deeply learn about them. You know, the responsibility of managing the team means you have to understand how to manage the team and know how to guide the team. And so I'll go really, really deep when I first start working with the team so that I understand how to support the team. I know the right questions to ask. I know how to unblock the team. Um, and so I feel quite lucky. It's sort of like I went to marketing school while working at Airbnb as I've added all these different responsibilities. It's, it's amazing. It's so true that you, you learn so much on the job. I know we, we were slightly joking before we came on air about, um, uh, well, I, I started out in finance actually uh, and banking years ago and then sort of got and then decided I got a bit bored quickly and actually decided marketing was what I wanted to do. And um, But then when I got a marketing role, I didn't really feel like part of the team because everyone was talking about, oh, I'm classically trained. I'm like, what is this classically trained? I've forgotten to go to some kind of marketing school over here that I never knew about. And so I, I, I've spent my career kind of a bit like you really, learning by getting new roles and picking up new skills and, and kind of broadening it. But there's definitely this thing, isn't there, about like, you know, you should have gone to, should have done MBA or you should have gone to some P&G Academy or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I absolutely had that. I mean, I could act like, oh, it was, you know, this linear path that I took. But I mean, I even applied to business school. You know, I went through the pain of, oh. you know, the testing, <laughs> the applications, you know, figuring out how I was going to pay for it because I thought I needed to. I thought, well, I'm not going to get the jobs that I want if I don't do it. And and then I went and um, I was in New York and you could go and you could sit in on a class. And I sat in on a supply chain management class and I nearly fell asleep. I thought, wow, like, I don't. I don't think this is the right thing for me. And and it was great because it was, I realized I'm a person who likes to learn what by doing. And, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to have that opportunity at Airbnb. But I mean, I, you know, certainly I think that if you're someone who's followed a more unconventional career path, like startups and technology are a good place for you because it is kind of a home, you know, can be like the home for the misfit toys of people who, who, aren't necessarily classically trained, but have the passion and ambition to do the work. And so it's been a great I think the other cool thing now as well, we know, is online learning. Uh, uh, well, actually a number of things. I mean, you've got, you've got podcasts, obviously you've got books, you've got LinkedIn, and you've got things like Mark Ritson's MBA, where in 12 weeks you can learn from the very, very best in, in, a, in an online classroom environment. So it, the tools that are out there as well to kind of compensate for not having done the MBA or the classic training is, is out there, right? Yeah, I like to say to my finance partners, I know enough to be dangerous. I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I have this incredible group of finance partners and, and analytics people who 
um, do a lot of that work for me. And my responsibility is to know which questions to ask. And I feel like that's the art that I've had to learn is how do you frame, and maybe I learned this as a strategist, like how do you frame the question? How do you frame the problem? And then you can, you know, I have the benefit of having lots of really talented people who can help me get to the right answer. And another weird thing, actually, I, I, I've learned to do is also recognize when you don't know, and it's okay to ask. It's okay to say, so does anyone around here know the best answer to this question? Because I don't, you know, rather than trying to make it up and pretend you do, you know, because there's always someone that does. And this is a funny thing about um, the power of conferences as well and, and industry events, because, you know, sometimes you can go, oh, geez, I'm going to take three days to go there and attend this conference. But actually, sometimes the power of it is just being with other marketers and going, oh, right, we're all fighting the same challenge. And can we learn together how to do it, you know? Absolutely. absolutely. I, I, we were talking earlier, I don't really go to that many conferences. I think I have like a guilty conscience <laughs> about, about taking time off. But when I do, it's so illuminating. And when in, in that cross-pollination you get between people who have shared problems you know, totally different products. I, I had I had a meeting with uh, the CMO of Cartier when I was um, in France last summer, and it was so illuminating. I mean, we couldn't be different. That's chalk and cheese, isn't it? You know, top end luxury and travel is very different. I mean, we could, it couldn't be more different. Our businesses, but the problems were very similar, and I felt like they had solved parts that we hadn't, and we had solved parts that they hadn't. And and it's such a reminder that you know, as a marketer in a company, it can be very lonely and you need to find community and you need to connect with people who um, are going through the same challenges. I had a great conversation with another friend who's a CMO who also inherited a really big team. And um, you know, one of the things, my team is organized in five pillars, five leaders, five pillars, which helps me keep my sanity and know who to go to and um, have this amazing leadership team. And And I was like, you have to try the five pillars, five leaders. It's really going to change your life. And it, and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, I have so much more time now. And um, and those kinds of things I think are just important to share with each other. Can you tell me about this after to come off air? This sounds good. Um, let me ask you this as a final question. Um, I'm just fascinated to know, like, is there like, what's the craziest or most exotic Airbnb that, or the most expensive Airbnb? Is there like a hidden like charts of some of the most surprising Airbnbs out there? Because I imagine you must come across them pretty wild. There are a lot of kind of amazing Airbnbs. I mean, no, we don't have a chart of them. We have, um, there's a woman who created this mushroom dome that you can sleep in, which is like one of our best listings on the platform. There's a giant potato that you can stay in. There's a UFO. I mean, it's actually such a testament to people's creativity, these crazy ideas that people turn into an accommodation and then, you know, people love staying in them. Um, so I don't have, I don't have one. I haven't stayed in any of those listings. I, I don't think I can fit with my kids, but um, my favorite Airbnb that I've stayed in, I think I have a soft spot for your Airbnbs in European cities because they often sort of capture the history of the place. And so I stayed, I was going for my um, brother-in-law's wedding in Italy many years ago. We stayed in Rome and there was this incredible apartment that we stayed in and it had been handed down through generations and it had all this artwork on the walls and photography and was so old. And I felt like I was in a time capsule. And, you know, the difference between that and staying in a 
hotel with a concierge and a bunch of other Americans and a continental breakfast is like truly what defines the difference of Airbnb. And so that for me is my best experience. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's a brilliant place to end. There's a wonderful image there in my mind. That sounds amazing. Great. Nancy, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been great to have you on and uh, thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you never want to miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, click on subscribe there too. If you want to follow me, you can do. I'm over at John Evans on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter as well at Uncensored CMO. Thanks again for listening and watching. I'll see you next time.